who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, Essie Flinor. Hello, and I am your host, Sarah Century, and I'm here to welcome a very special guest. We have Riley Silverman. Welcome, Riley. Woo! Hello. How are you? I'm feeling pretty good. How are you, Essie? I'm pumped. I'm like so happy Riley's here. We're going to talk about so much cool shit today. Oh, I'm excited. Yes. So I know you from writing at Fangirls, but what else? (laughs) (laughs) Both of you know me from that. Um, yeah, indeed. Rest in peace, fangirls. Um, yeah. Very, very <laughs> sad about that. I also am the head writer for a podcast called Troubled Waters. It's a podcast modeled after the British panel show style of show. We originally were an American and British like cross-Atlantic podcast where we had American and British guests, but we kind of felt like we had mined all the material we could of the US versus UK aspect of it. So we switched over to a more U.S.-based and kind of changed our, our direction a little bit. And now we're called Troubled Waters. So it used to be International Waters. I'm trying to think of what else I could say about me. I'm a member of an all-female improv production group called Ripley that I, I recently joined this year after having collaborated with them for about a year and a half. Uh, so I'm excited about that. I have a lot of online role-playing game stuff going on. Like I, I think at the time when this drops... I will either be just wrapping up or towards the end of a season of a show that I do on a channel on Twitch called Saving Throw Show called Dice X Machina. It's a D&D game, and it's set in D&D's world of Theros, which is their ancient Greek-inspired setting. It's actually based on a Magic the Gathering setting. And if I could just be nerdier, <laughs> I would say that I also play in a podcast role-playing game called The Game of Rassilon, which is a role-playing game based on Doctor Who, and I play the Doctor. 
Okay, because I was like, I'm pretty sure there is something RPG related that you do, Doctor Who. Like, I don't, I can't have made that up. So I was <laughs> surprising you saved it for last. I love that you were like, I don't know what I have to say. Here is all my nerd cred. <laughs> the reason why I tend to bring Game of Rathalon up towards the end is because it's more of a hobby than it is a gig. Sort of, mm. like it's a credit. Like we do the show and we love doing it, but by virtue of the fact that it is based on an IP that we don't own, it's not a show that we can do for profit. So it is very much a labor of love. And we do have a Patreon now, which is nice. So we are able to do some exclusive content that is for our Patreon subscribers, but it's not a show that we can like market really in a way like we're going to sell t-shirts or anything because it's not our property. Right, 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 so. right, of course. You were the person who finally got me to watch Doctor Who, and I loved it. So thanks Same. for that. Oh, actually, yeah. SC, didn't I do? Didn't I make you do a? Um, yes, I did. Yes, That's right. A uh, like whatever we called that thing where you went and watched like five episodes late of to a, the party. Yeah, late to the late party. To the party. Yes, I was like, oh, Doctor Who is amazing. Like this is wow. Okay, I love it. I want to watch them all because I, I've realized since I started playing video games, I am quite a completionist. So I'm trying to like let some of that go and be like, it's okay to just do parts <laughs> of things. You don't have to be a control freak. That was what therapy was about today. <laughs> I'm doing great is what I'm going to say. I yeah. gave myself an A on not being such a control freak. Good job. Anywho, I want to collect them all. I'm very Pokemon about life. I'm like, gotta have them all. <laughs> so I've seen some Doctor Who and I'm like, gotta catch them all. Gotta fill in those blanks. <laughs> Yeah, Doctor Who is really interesting in that regards because I think a lot of people are intimidated to start watching it for that reason because there's mm. so much of it. It really is an endurance challenge when it comes to that gotta catch them all vibe because there are over 50 years now of the show. <laughs> Actually, so we're coming wild. up in 60 years of the show. <laughs> so, because it premiered in 1963. So we're coming yeah. up, we're two years short of the 60th anniversary, which is nuts because I remember going Ooh. to the movie theater for the 50th anniversary and that was so long ago now at yeah. this point but wow I feel old um, <laughs> because I'm a relatively new Doctor Who fan like relatively speaking but the fact that my fandom goes back so far that I can remember going to the theater for the oh gosh oh no <laughs> what did I just do but there's so there the show aired from 1963 to 1989 before it was canceled and then there were a, about a decade and a half where it existed only in like book form in the target novelizations of the show and like a series of books called The New Adventures, Doctor Who, and stuff like that. And then there was also big Finnish audio in the UK started doing these like radio dramas of Doctor Who and they would bring in like old cast members, like previous doctors. And then the TV show that we know now premiered in 2005 only because... British TV is not as consistent as American TV as far as, and which is getting more and more the case over here too because of streaming. That's the only reason now we're only coming into the 13th season of a show that came back in 2005 as opposed to, mm. what would that be? I don't know, 16th, 17th season? Yeah. But there's been mm -hmm. a couple of years where there hasn't been a Doctor Who season for various reasons, often because the way Doctor Who works is really interesting in that. And I think this is mostly akin to how British TV works in that there's not really a writer's room the way there is for American television. What there is is the showrunner is kind of like really in charge of the entire season and then they hire out independent writers to actually like write the script themselves as opposed to in a room. And then the showrunner works with the writer to finalize the last draft of the script. But that's essentially how that show works. So each episode is written individually and then under like, like an overall arcing idea of it. 
And so what happens a lot of times is there have been three major showrunners of modern Doctor Who. So there was Russell T. Davies who ran the show when it came back. And then there was Stephen Moffat who took over when Russell left. And now there's Chris Chibnall who's taking over for Moffat. And essentially what's happened is every time the showrunner has changed, almost the entire show has changed. Like an entirely Mm. new production crew has come in. A lot of different creatives, especially when Moffat left and Chibnall took over. It was like, you know, people are always surprised about how often the doctor changes and becomes a new person. But like the show itself almost goes through a soft reboot every time either the doctor changes or the showrunner changes. It becomes almost a whole new show. And so you can kind of pick up almost anywhere because of that vibe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it has a a continuity. It's always changing and shifting. And one thing I have learned as someone who has gone through and now watched most of classic Doctor Who is that like any illusion that like, oh, if I watch back far enough, I'll understand everything is is lost (laughs) because the show... The show does not care about its own canon. And a lot of the aliens that you think are like explained in some deep lore literally just showed up in some old episode and they were just like, hey, this monster would be cool. And then people making the show now like, hey, remember that cool monster? Let's see that cool monster again. And that's all it is. And there's not like some deep lore. It's so it's, it feels like a daunting show, but at the same time, it really is a show you can kind of just dive into as long as you're willing to accept oh, I don't 100% know who this person is. And like, there might not be an explanation for who that person is most of the time, but usually when there is one, even then, it doesn't really distract from the story at hand. Mm -hmm. It's like the TV version of X-Men. Yeah, it's very much, (laughs) it is the most like a comic book of any show as far as the level of commitment that a audience member has to have to Mm. its continuity and to its characters, to its storyline. And very much in that same way of how, especially the big two, will often do like a soft tonal shift or continuity change to their books, especially like DC with like New 52. And then um, what was that more recent rebirth. one? Rebirth. Rebirth, <laughs> yes. Which was uh, less of a rebirth than I thought it was going to be. And so I was like, oh, I'm finally going to understand what's happening in DC Comics. And then I read two of them and I was like, oh, I still don't understand what's happening in DC Comics. So, okay. I feel like that's me reading every comic. I'm just like, I don't know what's happening, but it sure is pretty. Uh, Yeah, I really miss being a kid and just being able to like grab a comic book off a spindle and reading it and not needing to know what happened in the previous. Like, not, not saying that the books didn't want me to know but that, like, I just as a kid didn't care. I was just like, oh, mm-hmm. well, let's let's just check in on Spider-Man and see what he's up to, you know, as opposed to, like, I will say actually was what originally for a while broke me out of my love of comics for a bit was feeling like I had to buy every issue of a certain storyline to understand it. Like, when Spider-Man went through the Clone Saga, mm-hmm. that kind of really <laughs> soured me on comics for a while because I'm like, I don't have the money to buy this many comics to know what's happening so I'm always really appreciative now as I've gotten back into comics in the last, especially like five or six years. I'm always such a fan of when a particular arc has an omnibus that I can just like, the omnibus for Spider-Verse was like, I loved it so much. I was like, thank you. Thank you for giving me this so I can just read it all, even if it's not necessarily in chronological order. There's some chicanery I have to do with from the cover to cover to make this make sense to me. I still let it all, it's all in one book. Thank you. Yeah, comic collectors that made money off of comics as a collector's item primarily, I think, like really fought against trade paperbacks. But it's kind of great that trade paperbacks exist. It's nice to be able to collect things as books and as complete stories because 
I mean, I buy comics regularly and I was trying to find like an actual set, like where I have the full story of anything to loan to a friend. And I was just going through and being like, no, I'm missing like the fifth issue of this one. (laughs) And like, that's my entire comic collection. And I have so many comics. So I feel like it's normal to miss tons and tons of stuff whenever you're a comic book reader, which is why it's just like, man, just just collect them in the omnibus. That's fine. Yeah, I I've kind of had to start scaling back my pool list again, especially especially in the last year. I, I I bought everything that was on my pool list that had been sitting at my my local shop recently. And it, it wasn't terrible because I'd already kind of pared down my pool list anyway. Because I kept coming in and being like, you know what, hold on to it for now. And then I would I would come back in again and same thing. And so this <laughs> week I went in to grab something else. And the guy who works there, like Alex, he sat down <laughs> just the stack of like the entire past year's worth of like Ghost Spider comics and all of the <laughs> like and then also they usually randomly pull fun Poison Ivy comics for me. So there was like random mm. Poison Ivy books in there. There was like the entire 10th and 13th Doctor crossover books. And then also like random D&D comics that I've already bought the trade <laughs> for. And I'm like, okay, but I, I still bought it because I just felt bad. They've been pulling right. these books for me for a year and they're like <laughs> stuffing a folder full. So yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that that's pretty normal too. I'll go to go pick up my pull list sometimes and just be like, did I order this? Yeah. (laughs) Like the time whenever I put Ghost Rider on my pull list and just ended up with every single Ghost Rider comic that was coming out, which I was just trying to get like the main line and they're just like, why don't you have Ghost Rider 2099 too? Go ahead. Like here's Turns out you liked it. <laughs> I was totally fine with it because I was like, even though I wouldn't have necessarily walked up and been like, Ghost Rider 2099, hell yeah, I'm going to spend $7 <laughs> on that. Once I did, I was like, all right. <laughs> all right. I, I had the opposite thing where for a while they would just pull, for example, like, like your Ghost Rider thing, anything had Spider-Gwen or slash Ghost Spider on the cover they would pull for me. But I think because I haven't been coming in as much, they kind of fell off of that. So I went in and I realized, like, I guess I just assumed they would pull Gwenum versus Carnage for me, and they didn't. And uh, fair, because, again, I had a whole year's worth of pull list to pick up. So <laughs> I'm not, like, mad at them for it. But also, on my mind, I'm like, why didn't I ask them to do this? Like, why didn't I assume they should do this? So... Mm. Yeah, so you're into Spider-Gwen. I think that's one of the reasons that you and I are friends. I mean, the whole nerddom. Who else is your, like, when you think of some of your favorite characters in comics, obviously Poison Ivy, who else is on that list? Well, yeah, Spider-Gwen's probably the one that got me back into comics after that long break Mm. I was talking about. I remember I was, like, doing a comedy show in a comic book store, and I saw this Spider-Gwen cover, and I was, like, really interested in it. And just the entire idea of her as having previously been this victimized character, this, like, famously fridged character who now has her own book where she's a superhero and doesn't need no Peter Parker. Although mm-hmm. I knew when I first started reading it that I wouldn't get to just keep Spider-Gwen on Earth-65 forever. I was like, this is a nice thing they're doing. I guarantee you within a year or two, they move her to 616. And sure enough, they did. And that's why she's Ghost Spider now. But I liked having this book that had its own continuity, so I didn't have to worry about knowing what was going on all the time in the greater Marvel world at large and could just follow along with her. And I just I just love her. I love her energy. I love her vibe. Like I said, I liked that she was the hero. She wasn't just somebody who, alongside Peter Parker, also... I liked that in her world, she was Spider-Woman, and that was her role. 
And I just love her costume. It's so cool. And I like that she's mm-hmm. a drummer in a rock band. And of course, I shipped her with Mary Jane. So that's always a thing that's yeah. happening. <laughs> oh, she's just, she's so graceful and so badass. And she has so much internal conflict. And I really relate to that. I have a ton of internal conflict. I love Spider-Gwen. And I love Gwenum too. I think Gwenum is so fun. That's such a fun story. I don't know if I've read the newest Gwenum stuff, but I really like, and this might be stuff that's like way dated and has been retconned or changed since then. But what I love about Spider-Gwen slash Gwenum is how at the end of the Spider-Gwen run before she became Ghost Spider and into Ghost Spider, how like the fact that she actually made peace with her symbiote and like managed to actually have a good relationship with it and the symbiote was just her costume. yes. I loved it. And I love that I her costume that. can turn into like little tiny spiders and run around and how oh, ah, so cute. Yeah, it's creepy and awesome. And I love that about her. And I like that that was like a unique thing they did with her to kind of set her apart from the spiders in the main spider universe in 616. So if they've changed that, I'm sure I'll be disappointed when I get to it. But if they have changed that, <laughs> I don't want to know yet. Because I want to, I, again, I have to read all the comics from last year that I haven't read yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you've got a task before you. <laughs> so, but I, I, yeah, I do think the Gwenham costume looks really cool. But I like that it became her own costume after a while, too. Like, like I like that it's still the symbiote, but it looks like the white costume. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the whole idea of like making peace with it and like not feeding its rage was really fascinating. And the, and the whole storyline with Spider-Gwen, where she went to jail and, like, faced up to her own crimes and, like, wouldn't, like, she wouldn't leave early. Like, when the Avengers of her world offered her a spot to, like, work off her penance with them instead of being in jail. And she was like, no, I belong here and I'm going to do what I I do. And I thought that was really interesting. It was a very fascinating way to do it. And it was because it was towards the end of the Latour Rodriguez run and they were just kind of, like, putting her in a cool, at-peace place with herself even though then she became Ghost Spider and they kind of undid a lot of what happened at the end of that run. I knew they were going to, but I was still very happy with how they ended their run of it. And I, that is one thing I'm learning with comics is like accepting that the things <laughs> yeah. that the writers you like that they do will not remain forever established. And it's okay. And it's okay to be like, somebody else is going to come in and put their own voice on it and they're going to change the tone or they're going to change what's happening you just have to view that as like a separate work. And I think that's, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's something that's like, I wish people could take maybe more to part with film adaptations too. Yeah. Is like, just view every adaptation as its own separate unique thing, as opposed to trying to make it work exactly like the previous versions of it did in your mind. I don't read a ton of superhero comics anymore and it's not a slight on them. It's just hard to keep track of everybody. I think a lot of the characters that I really adore, I adore more out of the easier to follow versions of them, like the movies and the TV shows. Like, obviously, I adore the Harley Quinn cartoon. And I also adore Poison Ivy on the Harley Quinn cartoon because they made my OTP a canon ship, which is great. But Mm -hmm. Batman the Animated Series was pretty iconically my Batman for me as a kid. Like, I mean, I, I watched the live-action 60s series and then the Tim Burton movies, but Batman the Animated Series was primed to be there for me for Batman when I was in like a kid in the 80s, so it was wonderful, and early 90s more so. But So that's kind of my iconic Batman. That's like Harley and Ivy from that are where I originally pulled them from, more than the, their comics version now. And I admit, I love Marco Roby's take on Harley, and I think that I actually like... I never, I never loved Harley... As the cartoon version, I was always more of an Ivy girl, but Margot's 
take on her and then the way they've kind of melded that in between the sort of comic and video game version of her and made what is now the Harley Quinn cartoon version of her, I really like. So I'm, I'm really into that. And then obviously love Scarlet Witch. So I'm glad that MCU has finally given her like real center stage. But otherwise, I, I think the books that I'm more drawn to are, I loved Paper Girls and Saga. So I'm a big Brian K. Fawn fan. And then I also... I love Rat Queens, although I, I'm a little more behind on it. And now it's sadly over, which is a right. huge bummer. I was a little bit involved with Rat Queens in that I, I did an official RPG based on Rat Queens for about a year right. for Hyper RPG. And I, I played Braga on that. So I have like a special place in my heart for Rat Queens. So even though it went through a few pretty bad and not great periods with like mm-hmm. real life things involving it. Yeah. It's just... Like, you're going to give me an orc who is trans, who is badass and, like, is, like, so cool. And and not just, like, a one-note character either and who's, like, trans. You only really know she's trans if you happen to read her, like, one-off, which is great. So, I don't know. There's a lot of cool things about that story for me. And I'm, I'm, I'm sad that it's ended. It's, it's one that I would have loved to have had a chance to write myself. But I also understand letting something sunset a little bit, you know? But there is a uh, there's a yeah. board game coming out. Actually, it might be already kickstarting by the time this comes out. I actually ended up getting exclusive on it to talk about because I I it was actually really interesting because because I was on the Rat Queens RPG. One of our fans was tagging us, letting us know about the board game because the board game is kind of like a third party that kind of like licensed it and it's really interesting. It's being made by Deepwater Games. And first thing I noticed when I was being tagged in the board game was that it had Hannah and it had Betty and it had Violet and it had Dee and didn't have Braga. And so I was like, well, why? And so I, I actually said to the fan of our show who was tagging me in it, like, I go, let me know when Braga's involved or something like that. And it was kind of like a snarky response. And then they were like, well, maybe it'll be DLC. I don't know. And I, and I was like, well, I would like the, the company to tell me that instead of making me hope for it, you know? Mm-hmm. And then they actually tweeted at the company asking them. Then Deepwater Games responded to our fans to tell them that, yes, Braga is going to be our very first unlock for our Kickstarter. And I was like, well, you should probably let people know that because I understand <laughs> I understand marketing and I understand the need to kind of like build anticipation. But mm-hmm. I will tell you that for me, like if I hadn't had this conversation with you, my immediate response to seeing your your push is that Braga doesn't matter to you and that you're trans, like you don't think it matters to involve your trans character in the beginning, you know? So, mm-hmm. and they were like, you know what? That's 100% right. And so then they actually reached out to me through my work at Nerdist and they were like, hey, we're going to go ahead and, and kick up our timeline and we're going to announce Braga's expansion pack early and we want to give you the exclusive to launch it. So it was one of those moments where like they easily could have been like, hey, how dare you be so critical of us and we're not going to mm-hmm. do anything with you. But instead they're like, hey, we, we heard what you said and we agree with you and we want to do right by this character. And because she matters so much to you, we want to give you the chance to help share that information. So that was cool. That's that amazing. wild. I never yeah. knew. Even that there was a board game. That's so amazing. That's actually still on the way out. It's uh, it's, yeah. it's being developed, but it's uh, it's a it's a deck builder game. And it's it's for one to four players. And so you start with the four and then they're going to add in other characters along, along the way. And so the very first character they're going to add is Braga. As much as I would love to her, for her to be a launch character, and the argument I kind of made was like, yes, I know she wasn't an official member in the first comics, but she was there. Like, she was fighting alongside mm-hmm. them. And 
She's actually been a member of the team, I think, longer than Violet was because Violet left at one point in the comics. And I was like, well, Braga, yes, she wasn't an original member, but that's kind of like saying, well, Wolverine wasn't an original X-Men. Yeah, but everyone knows Wolverine's an X-Men. <laughs> like, there's no, there's no, like, you know what I mean? So that's kind of my feeling about it. But so I, I'm sad that book is ending. I haven't read the, the newest run. I heard, I heard it doesn't end great, but I, I don't, oh, I can't speak to that because I haven't read it. So, yeah. Well, and, and we have you here today to talk about another really cool comic that is currently coming out. So we're going to talk a little bit about The High Republic, which I have really enjoyed reading. I was surprised. I'm not, you know, I'm not a huge Star Wars fan. I know you are, Riley, which, like, I want to ask, like, a million questions. But I, I love Yoda, as I was telling you all before we started recording, which is, like, what a weird distance. Oh, you mean, you mean old Gorgu? <laughs> Yes, I forgot the baby's name. I was like, "Excuse me, like, what did you just say to me?" <laughs> no, I, I, I actually, I actually love, I love classic Yoda as well. But that was always my that was like because we called Grogu Baby Yoda for so long, right? And a lot of people hated the name Grogu. I think it's adorable, and so I'm not mad about it. But I liked the gag of now, and I love Yoda. But now me calling Yoda old Grogu makes me laugh really hard. <laughs> I think that's hysterical. <laughs> now that I understand it, <laughs> I was like, "Why do I know that name?" I I was in Wikipedia, and it was one of the characters on the side you could read about. That's literally how I learned the the baby's name. <laughs> oh wow! Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't keep up with the season of the Mandalorian. I was, you know, there's just a lot of allegations of and outright transphobia. And I don't hate on anybody making yeah. their decision to watch it. I just made one not to because I had too much TV to watch. <laughs> it's very, very fair. And I don't want to get too into that for exactly, this purposes. Right? But yeah. I will say that it's very tough for me because Ahsoka Tano is a character that means so much to me. And she's also, by the way, who told us that Grogu's name was Grogu in the show. Oh. And it is, it's not as bad as losing Harry Potter the way that I did, but it definitely has shades of that. And it's a little bit rough to be like, oh, the thing that I have more comfort from is also tainted by this thing that the world exists. And yeah, but I I love the character so much that I like trying to plow through and like I still have the animated versions of her and hopefully, I don't know. It's hard when it's just allegations and the allegations themselves have become cloudy but as as myself, a victim of transphobic violence, it's a tough situation. And if I didn't love Star Wars as much as I do, and I didn't love Ahsoka Tano as much as I do, I would be in your same shoes where I would have a hard time sticking with it. Exactly. And I think that everybody has, I mean, Sarah and I talk about this all the time. We understand why people make decisions as podcasts. They're like, okay, we're no longer going to cover comics from these folks because of this thing. And we're like, there's a reason not to do every company. There's so much abuse and and behind the scenes, and then there's so much problematic representation, you know, <laughs> on screen, on the page. It's it's hard. We all have to sort of navigate it ourselves and figure out what we can tolerate. And yeah, like if it was one of my favorite characters, I would pro- I might make a different decision, you know? But yeah. so yeah, I totally respect, like, there is no ethical consumerism <laughs> under capitalism, okay? So like, we're all doing the best we oh, fucking yeah. can. <laughs> For me, it's, it's less about... Ethics. I mean, with with money that directly goes to a certain author's hands, I'm a little bit more prickly. But mm. when it comes to something like this, it's more just, does it still spark joy for you? And if it doesn't, mm. like, I, I had withdrawn from the Harry Potter fandom prior to when she outed herself. 
because I wasn't getting joy from it anymore. And like people using their joy of it to silence me when I was criticizing the issue made me not want to be part of it. Like it made it made things about it that I had fun with no longer feel fun or happy to me. And so I kind of just was like, okay, well, that is a chapter of my life that is now gone and I am just done with it. It is what it is. And it, it, that was hard too because I actually went to the Wizarding World on my name day. Like when I had my name legally changed, like my way of celebrating in 2016 mm. was to throw on the robes of my house and go to the Wizarding World and, and take pictures of my friends and oh. be all dressed in lines in a cool green dress and stuff like that. And so I lost that a little bit. And then that's why it was so funny that then when I had my Disney AP in 2019, going down to Galaxy's Edge for Star Wars was like my new version of escaping to Wizarding World, even though one was five minutes from my house and one was 45 minutes to an hour, depending on traffic. Um, so then to have that get tr- two transphobic things happening back to back was like, why Why can't I have anything? But, yeah, why can't we have nice things because of transphobes? Yeah, and I and I and like you said, it's like you you find out what works for you. And I love that idea of like, figuring out if it still makes you happy. I think I'm such a, I get so in my head that I, I can't enjoy things. I've told Sarah this is my theory before because I refuse to watch a show while it's still coming out because I don't want to help it get renewed, but I will totally watch it. <laughs> like I'll watch the, the season of The Mandalorian now that I know it already has a season three coming out. Like I'm not going to impact that. Like now I'll watch it. You know, <laughs> like that's such a, I'm not saying it's logical people. I'm saying I'm yeah. just figuring out how to like not to be able to sleep at night because <laughs> I am a very anxious person. <laughs> Given that Disney is essentially building an entire franchise of Disney plus Star Wars shows. Yeah. I like the idea of like, well, we're going to really live or die by this one second season. (laughs) I think they will. I think like my viewership is really going to make the difference, right? Like I'm pretty sure they're like, ooh, Essie didn't watch. Maybe we should cancel it. (laughs) I will say I I found season two of Mandalorian to be very good. So if you, but you also aren't as big of a Star Wars fan as me. So maybe. Exactly, exactly. Will you tell us a little bit about how you got into Star Wars and like what your entry point was? And then which Star Wars comics you read first? Oh, boy. I got into Star Wars as what they call a child. I was born in 81. So Star Wars was kind of like bookending my own existence. And my brother was really into it when when we were kids because we were children in the 80s. And we went on a, a family vacation down to Florida. And we had one of those vans from the 80s that had a TV and a VCR in it because we were swank. And... When we drove down to Florida, my parents bought one of the VHS sets of the entire original Star Wars trilogy for my brother and I to watch. And I was like just hitting the age where I was able to really focus on it and get into it. And I just, I've been obsessed with that ever since. So that that just like drew me in. So the first time I saw Star Wars was on like a little tube television in a van on the way down to Florida, on the way to probably going to Disney World. And yeah, I fell in love with it. And I think that might have been around the time when they were first starting to put in things like Star Tours and stuff like that, perhaps. I can't remember. I have to look up the years to see if they line up. But yeah, I've been into it ever since then. So I couldn't tell you now what the first Star Wars comics I read were because back then I was just consuming all Star Wars I could. So if there was a Star oh, Wars Oh, so you comic, were just like whatever it was. I, I totally get that. When I'm reading like a bunch of comics and like watching movies of like the same thing, I'm like, you know what? I'm not sure which storyline this is from. <laughs> yeah, there was a whole bunch of Star Wars books. Some of them were a little bit too high of a reading level for me at the time. Or not, I wouldn't say too high of a reading level, but they were like 
boring because I was a kid. You know, they were like, mm, it was like, mm-hmm. but there were some young adult targeted Star Wars books that I got into. And then eventually I read a couple of the, like the Dark Empire books and stuff like that. But I never, I never really got super into the Star Wars expanded universe novels, which are now the like legacy novels. Mm-hmm. But I did read some of the comics and yeah. But mostly I, at the time, I was more of a movies and video game girl when it came to mm. Star Wars. So I think I think the original trilogy was like my true calling. And then the next major Star Wars thing that really drew me in was the Nice the Old Republic video games. And then I don't think I really got into the comics as much until the newer continuity, like the, the, the Disney era continuity. Mm. And actually, I read, I loved the Darth Vader run that I believe was written by Charles Soule, who wrote the first High Republic novel, Light of the Jedi. And that was really fascinating because that was actually a Darth Vader novel that it showed us what happened and how Darth Vader learned in between A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back when Vader learns that Luke Skywalker is the name of the person who destroyed the Death Star. And that's when he learns that he had been betrayed by the Emperor and that the Emperor had been hiding his own son's existence from him. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Palpatine told Anakin at the end of Revenge of the Sith that Padme died and her kids died, right? And I don't think he knew, I don't think Palpatine even really knew they were still alive for sure, but that's what he had been told by Palpatine. So then he had like rage about it and stuff like that, which was really Because at cool. the beginning, he's just like, I'm going to find who turned my son against me and like all of this and whoever. Yeah. He like tries to go after people and then discovers it. Right. Yeah. It's like I've been betrayed. Yeah. I think it might even be Boba Fett that tell, I think he hired Boba Fett to find out and Boba Fett reports it to him. And I, and the, the scene is so great because he's standing on the bridge of Star Destroyer and I just put my hands up as if I'm just showing you what happened. I realized mm-hmm. well, yeah. <laughs> he's standing on the bridge of a Star Destroyer and you had that big glass like window that you see on those things. And he's told his name was Luke Skywalker. And then he's like, leave me or whatever. And then Boba Fett leaves. And then you just see the glass just crack. Like, it doesn't shatter completely, but the entire panes are just suddenly spider-webbed because the force is like, he's like, his rage just like cracks everything. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, It's so good. I just got finished doing a list of best Darth Vader's comic stories for Comic Book Herald. I think it'll be up by the time this goes up, probably. Oh, cool. And yeah, that was it. Like, that was one of the ones. But there's so many good ones. Like, if you just log on to your Marvel Unlimited and read, then you will find tons of really, really good Star Wars comics. Yeah, another great one that I recommend is the run that's Darth Vader, Dark Lord of the Sith that's set right after Revenge of the Sith. Mm -hmm. And it's all about him learning how his suit works and also learning like how to make the Sith lightsaber. And also it's him hunting down other Jedi that are still alive. In fact, one of of the Jedi he fights is Yocasta Nuhu from the, the archives, which is fascinating. And mm-hmm. it's all about, and it's all about him training the Inquisitors that then themselves go off and hunt Jedi. And in fact, I saw a really interesting YouTube video that breaks down how because Darth Vader is who trained the Inquisitors, that is why Ahsoka Tano is able to defeat the Inquisitor in the Ahsoka novel, whose lightsabers she gets the crystals from, because the way that. Vader trains the Inquisitors, it's completely relentless attacks and no defense. And so she's, it's all offensive, which is like the brutality of Vader. And she's able to defeat the Inquisitor because it's all 
offense and she's able to break through because there's no defense, which is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. I love, love, love Vader in the comics because it's always just, he goes sick house on everybody in the comics and it's really fun <laughs> to watch. And I, I like how the comics have really like played up how much Vader is essentially like a zealot for the dark side because mm-hmm. he has to be because he has to convince himself that what he did was right. And the way he'll totally. call people like blasphemers and this is heresy yeah. and stuff like that is really interesting. I know there's a run recently that I, I want to read that I, I think is between Jedi and Empire or vice versa where he, doesn't he run into Padme or is it Dorme? Like, is it one of Padme's? Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the Handmaiden, yeah. right? And he thinks it's Padme oh, at first, right? I, I is, need to read that one still. That's pretty fun. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed that one too. I have just, honestly, I have a hard time anytime I'm trying to pick what my favorite of the Darth Vader stories are because they're all really good. Yeah, I'm not a giant dark side girl usually, but yeah. the Vader comics are really interesting for that reason. I'm typically light side, but... Yeah, I was going to say that I almost never really had interest in him. And I was always like, Anakin's annoying. <laughs> like, that was yeah. my take Thanks. on Anakin. And uh, the comics kind of changed things for me a little bit. I can see a little bit more of why he's at least... He's so terrible, but he's kind of this very tragic figure, which it took a really long time to sell me on that because I was like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Don't know about that. Sarah, how did you get into Star Wars comics? Mm, I just, it must have been the oldies. I must have picked up some old ones. I remember picking up, like, there was mad magazines that would parody Star Wars and stuff like that. <laughs> so I remember reading those whenever I was a little kid. There were, like, cartoon books that had little Star Wars jokes and satire and stuff like that. So I would find those for, you know, a quarter at a garage sale or something. And I definitely remember reading the old series of Star Wars, some of them, which I think a lot of people uh, were pretty dismissive towards. But there's parts of that series that are really good. And it just goes to show that the Star Wars comics are kind of underrated because there's just so, so many good stories but most of my favorites, I think, were in the Dark Horse period because that was when, like, Jan Dersima was doing all of these comics and you just got to hear more about, like, the Twi'leks and there was all these new characters and I just really love that era. But I love the Marvel era, too, honestly, because now we're getting cool series about, you know, Chewbacca, Captain Phasma, like, just so, so many. One of the ones that I read that I really liked was Star Wars Age of Resistance Captain Phasma. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was, like, such a... Like, I love the way it made me want to, like, think things were more complicated than they were. And then it was like, no, Phasma's (laughs) an asshole. And I'm like, oh, right, 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 right. Of course, of course. (laughs) Just because she looks cool (laughs) and is, like, a badass doesn't mean a good thing, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Which I I feel like is, you know, kind of the Vader thing as well. Um, But, yeah, so, you know, coming back to the High Republic... Riley, when did you start reading these? Because these all just started coming out in 2021. So have you been reading them as they came out? Yeah, I was really, really excited for the High Republic publishing event because it was announced about a year ago or maybe a little longer at this point, but who knows what time is anymore. But for me, when the High Republic was announced as this like next phase of Star Wars, it's exactly what I wanted Disney to do when they took over Star Wars, which was rather than just make a series of these sequels, the original films, which I'm more positive on than a lot of people are, because I, like I mentioned earlier, I love Knights of the Old Republic so much. And so I saw the potential of 
how Star Wars could be a much more expansive universe because there's such a long period of time to tell stories within. And so I either wanted them to set something hundreds of years in the past or hundreds of years in the future and let them stand on their own two feet and be independent of what we think of as the stories. And the, I like the High Republic as a concept because I like that it we know, regardless of what's going on, that there's never going to be a universe-destroying event because we know the future exists. And that means that they have to do different and more interesting things to raise the stakes and do fun things with it. So I was like, cool. And also, I've always loved Jedi stuff. I'm I'm a pretty staunch Jedi apologist because there's been a pretty significant and not unjustified turn against the Jedi and fandom in the last couple of decades because of, you know, there's not a lot of nuance that necessarily should get dug into with the Jedi, right? There's a lot of <laughs> a lot of aspects of how the Jedi operate that if you really put it like in real world terms seems kind of awful. But at the same time, they're just supposed to be silly space knights, right? They're just they're just knights with laser swords who run around and, and do monk stuff and save people. And that's what the Jedi are supposed to be. And it's hard because all the film depictions we've had of the Jedi are them either completely in shambles or deserving to be completely in shambles. The Jedi of the prequel stories are so shady. And even in the Clone Wars, like they're fighting a war the whole time. They're not doing what the Jedi are supposed to be doing, which is taking down slave cartels and fighting off smugglers that are that are like stealing medicine from planets and stuff like that. That's what the Jedi are supposed to be doing. And that's what the Jedi and the High Republic are doing. The first novel in the High Republic, the prose novel of Light, Light of the Jedi, the first third of that book is like a disaster movie where the ship has been destroyed in hyperspace and now all its pieces are just ricocheting out of hyperspace at like, full light speed and they're just like slamming into planets and destroying these populated areas and so the beginning of this novel is all these jedi arriving on the scene and just booking it to do whatever they can to stop these things from hitting and then they do some great jobs raising the stakes and the whole time i'm like pumping my fist reading this book like this is the jedi at the best this, this is what the jedi <laughs> should be doing and i love these books because they don't shy away from some of the negative aspects of the Jedi. There are a lot of things about it that they, they've like addressed on and touched on already. So they're not trying to be like, oh, here's the era where the Jedi worked. It's just, no, here's the Jedi at the height of their powers and the height of their influence in the universe. And here's how they operated on a day-to-day -day basis. And then that allows for fun individual stories that you have characters who question the Jedi's motives and characters who are Jedi who are like, I don't think this is how we should be handling this. And I'm really, I'm doubting my own thoughts about how I feel the force should work. And I, I think it's really interesting. And so the fun thing about the higher public comics is that they, they tell these kind of smaller stories so far that are set amidst these other stories. And there's lots of really fun crossovers and tie-ins from the prose books with the comic books because so far so so far is only two titles that are published there's the star wars the high republic comics written by kevin scott and then is the high republic adventures comics which are from uh daniel jose older i think i'm saying it might be older and one is a little bit more of an, a typical comic audience i would say and then the High Republic Adventures comics are a little more adolescent or young, like maybe like middle middle grade level readers. Or your local SE. Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. I'm reading both of them. 
I feel like it's written for me. I was like so moved by Adventures. Yeah. Like I loved both of them. They were really beautiful titles. But like Adventures, I was like, oh, it's me. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, Adventures is very much like I'm. I'm this magical child who's never found a place that belongs. Turns out there's there's people from the stars coming to make me who I am. It's it's so good. Yeah. It's so good. And I love like like you know the secret. You know her culture thinks that the force is evil and you should never use it. You know, and then she she finds out she has the force and then it like has to keep it as a secret. And I'm like, well, that sounds like queer. <laughs> yeah. And then the main higher public line actually has a pair of what's they're calling non-binary. I'm I don't know how you feel about this, Essie. I'm not as big of a fan of queer representation when I'm more okay with it, like you just said, like metaphorical than I am when... What Ben Kahn always calls it is like techno-babble non-binary. Yeah, where, or like non-binary or even trans characters where, like I, for me, like for example, like I don't consider Jodie Whittaker's female doctor to be a trans character. I consider her to be an alien who changes their their identity when they when they regenerate. And this one happens to be a woman. I don't think of the mm-hmm. doctor as a character who ever struggled with dysphoria or didn't identify as a man when he was a man and now identifies as a woman when when she's a woman. But I don't think the Doctor is a trans character. I think it's a character who changed gender, which is not the same thing. Because the Doctor changes gender through sci-fi reasons, right? Not through a gender transition journey, right? Right, right. And there's like a middle area where like, at this point you will have heard R.B. Lemberg's interview. R.B. Lemberg has like a magical transition, but the the reason for the transition is transitioning gender. You know, it's right. not like a regeneration I don't believe that, like, you have to experience dysphoria to be trans, and I know yeah. you don't either. And I just want to say that because I know it's, like, some people do. Um, no, it's so worth for clarifying. Me, it's, Very worth yeah. clarifying. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, we're like, you can be what you are. We love you. Yeah. What, what I mean more is that I don't think the doctor has been a character on any sort of journey. Like, the doctor did not identify yes, as trans yes. until— and, and, like, so people would try to go, well, the doctor has a trans character now. And I, I also, even with Star Trek, I feel like— I respect, and I have since been a little bit put in my place about the way that I feel about the way that people speak about trills as being trans representation. And I, I've, I've had enough people in the community tell me how important trills are to them specifically that I, I, I have kind of like recognized that my own scrolliness about it is a little bit misplaced. But I love that on Discovery, they made the characters who are carrying symbiotes also are trans organically themselves right, right. as characters. And played by trans actors. And right. like, there's layers of of making that feel a little bit less. Like, I yeah. think sometimes it feels like people get credit for representation that I'm like, oh, like that plausible deniability is part of the problem for me. You know, yeah. it's like if you asked people who created Star Trek if they were trans, they'd say like, absolutely not. And is that the only reason we know people are trans or characters are trans in this case? Like, no, but it is like a piece of how I perceive the media itself, you know? So I, I'm yeah. with you. I think, you know, I like Sarek and Tercet. I believe that's right. I think that's right, yeah. I really like them. I, yeah, everything I read was like, they are non-binary. So when I got there and they were like, well, we use plural pronouns. Yeah. I I was like, I'm not clear. Like maybe we'll like have a moment where like we get to see that for them and it feels really authentic. But for me, I wasn't like, oh, this screams canonical non-binary. I mean, they yeah. did share it. Like Star Wars did like put it out there as part of Trans Visibility Day. Like they, they celebrated it and like promoted it. So I think there's like a, I'm sort of almost like 
countering my earlier argument. So I don't know. I feel like they're, to me, they're still like, I like them. They're interesting. I like that people are using they and, and like getting, you know, they're seeing that on the page. Yeah. But it's like still a little bit different. Yeah. I think for me, Sarah and, and Tarek are kind of similar to the trill in my mindset where, yeah, they use, they use they, them pronouns because they're essentially one spirit split into two bodies or something along those lines, as opposed to being characters who just reject the concept of the gender they were assigned and have chosen to identify as non-binary. If that, if that makes sense. Like, we don't know their journey. We don't know. Maybe their entire right, race behaves right. this way. And if their entire exactly. race behaves this way, then it's like, okay, creating a non-binary alien race is fascinating. And I think it is something to examine in sci-fi of what happens when you have a society who doesn't strict to gender roles the way that like humans do and earth society does especially like and unfortunately we've had very bad examples of that in the past like star trek but i think that without knowing the context of their history and their existence i'm still a little bit like yeah i'm glad that you were able to get some good social media engagement on trans visibility day and i am glad that star wars is is i guess i guess the more positive read is that I'm glad that Disney is using the platform of Star Wars to raise awareness for trans visibility on Trans Visibility Day. But give me some Jedi who are explicitly stating that they are of these identities and have that be a thing. Like we don't, I will say that the Star Wars novel, the, the higher public novels do have some queer characters. Like there's there's a, there's a male, male married couple at one point in one of the stories that's I think going to be relatively more important as the story goes on. And it's hard because Jedi are typically pretty celibate, so there's not a whole lot of, like... But there is one simmering Jedi romance that's, like, a romance novel level of, like, two characters who have had long, burning passions for each other. That'll be fun to see how that plays out. But, yeah. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You've probably heard the name Mary, Queen of Scots, and maybe you know the importance of her legacy to the British monarchy. But how much do you know about her life and what she was really like? For instance, did you know that she preferred to have her eggs scrambled or that giving gifts was her love language? In my podcast, Vulgar History, we'll be talking about all that and more during an eight-part miniseries about the fascinating life of Mary, Queen of Scots. Vulgar History is a feminist women's history comedy podcast where we don't shy away from the messy, complicated lives of women from the olden times. Particularly with women in history, it's easier to use broad strokes to portray who they were, and it's like we forget they probably also had messy lives, complicated relationships, and maybe things weren't as black and white as they might seem in a textbook. But I'm dedicated to sharing the sides of the stories we don't always hear, and each episode is supported by rigorous historical research. Turns out there's really something about Mary Queen of Scots. So be sure to turn into my series about Mary Queen of Scots and check out the other incredible women I've talked about while you're there. You can listen and subscribe to Vulgar History wherever you get your podcasts and learn more at vulgarhistory.com. I could see a writer taking us there. I could see, I don't know anything about Kevin Scott personally, so I don't, I don't know if that 
how Kevin Scott relates to this concept, you know? So, like, I would say, like, I'm not set either way, but I haven't seen anything on the page that made me go, like, oh, I see myself represented. You know what I mean? So, like, not that I'm the only way we talk about being non-binary, right? It's, like, a huge broad swath of people. But, yeah, I'm just saying, like, I was with you, Riley. Like, my feeling was a little bit less, like, would we say that's good representation? Like, I'm not, I'm not saying it's not. I'm just yeah. saying, do we know yet? I think it's neutral representation. I think it's not mm. bad representation. And, and I will say that I've briefly met Kevin Scott at a Doctor Who convention because he's also very involved in Doctor Who extended media as the same way he is with Star Wars. And I follow him on Twitter. I think he is a writer who is an ally who is trying to do right by the concept. And like, I don't think necessarily that he's fallen short, but I think also he's moved the goalpost forward, but I think there is more space to go. And I think that's probably the best way that I can sum up how Absolutely. I feel about I l- it. I love that. I think that's such a good description because it's like, I'm not shitting on it. Like, I don't think it's yeah. awful. I just, what I heard people saying about it made me think it was something different than it was. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of follow that trap a lot too. Like, I don't talk about Star Wars as publicly as I used to because there's always fighting involved. But there was a group that I was in that was sharing Disney's thing about it on Visibility Day. And there were so many cis people responding with, isn't this the best? Oh, they're doing the best. The same kind of thing happened when when a certain person was let go from Star Wars for not, they, they say transphobia. They seem to let her be transphobic for a really long time until she was anti-Semitic and then they let her go, which is also good. I'm happy for that. But... That was maybe more harsh than I meant to be, but whatever. A lot of people are like, you know what they should do? They should hire a trans woman to play the same character and then really make the bigots angry. And I was like, you think that's progressive. That's not progressive. You're basically saying, let's uh, make a trans woman be our lightning rod for all the hate and bigotry that will come her way. I'm a a big woman. I'm tall. I'm six foot. I'm not muscular the way that somebody was, but I could probably play a, a similar character. And I love Star Wars. I would never agree to that role. I, are you kidding me? Do you know how miserable that... And then someone's like, well, maybe they should hire an actor and ask her who she wants to play. I'm like, that's not how casting works. Like, you don't cast an actor and then go, okay, what do you want to play? It's like, no, writers write characters and then they, <laughs> they go to a casting director. Anyway, I think that people who aren't in the community... And there were, to the credit, I want to say there were trans people who also said the same thing, who are not actors, who were not thinking of it in regards to how people would treat that performer in real life. They, they were thinking of it more as like a fun thought experiment. So I don't want to say that anyone who thought that is not trans because I don't want to have that kind of like gatekeeping mentality. But I do think a lot of people who celebrated that idea were coming at it from an angle of more of like a, that would be awesome and I feel good about myself for having said this as opposed to it actually being something that they should be rallying around on. I just realized how much we've not really talked about High Republic for the show that I can't want to talk to you about. That's all good. So as Riley was saying, there are two series. There's the High Republic, which is from Marvel, and that is written by Kevin Scott, pencils by Ario Anandito, inks by Mark Morales, lettering by Ariana Mayher, and coloring by Annalisa Leone. And I mean, I love the art. It's so beautiful. It's so fun. Like each of the comics do a good job of like, you know, once an issue, maybe once every other issue, like doing a big like full page splash action shot. And those are so fun because I'm like, oh, look at that alien. Oh, look at that cool alien. Oh, I've never seen that animal before. And I really enjoy that personally. (laughs) What's cool about that series too is that the primary antagonist of that story, the Dringer, I think I'm saying it right, 
they were first introduced in one of the novels, Into the Dark, which was the first YA novel of this story. And yeah, so it's, it's really cool to now have a visual of what these creatures that I had previously read in another novel look like. And then, so you can tell they're building these up to be one of the antagonists of this ongoing shared universe of stories. Totally, totally. And and they're, you know, they feed off the dark force and they also have the ability to sort of, I was just watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So it reminds me of when Hive takes control of other Inhumans. I think it's mostly force-sensitive people. The Drenger can like take control of them or influence them. But also, you know, maybe not. Because Skier was like, gotcha. So maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. But anyways. Yeah, I, I think they're still kind of revealing what, what's going on with that. And there's also, yeah, TBD. There's also the element <laughs> of they like plant a parasite inside like the dead body of yes, a Yes, that's right. That's so. right. That's right. Yeah. And that's that's very creepy and cool. Yeah. It's very the thing like to have <laughs> yes, take yes. over your body. And the thing with the Drenger is like, they're not necessarily force users like the way the Sith are, but they're kind of like, beings of the dark side like they're like almost like a naturally occurring dark side creature which yes is really yes they're they're living plants for the I, we didn't i don't think i clarified that when i mentioned them but they are they are plant creatures as opposed to animal like they're they're sentient moving plants yeah you know what i don't think i even fully realized that so i'm so glad you said that i'm like oh right of course they are <laughs> i think i only know that completely because of their usage in into the dark because basically what happens is into the dark they go to that space station that's that's paneled in this book and the Jedi that are there see these statues and they have this strong sense of the dark side. And so they take the statues with them back to the Jedi temple to cleanse them. And then when they get to the Jedi temple on Coruscant, the Jedi, there are like, there's nothing in these statues. And that's when they go, Oh no, those statues were the thing keeping the dark side in place. They were the wards, and we removed the wards. So now we have to go back and put them back. And when they get back, the Drenger, like when they when they were on the station earlier, there was all this vegetation around, and the, the headcanon that they all got for it was like, oh, no one's been here in generations, and so the plants have just taken over the station. Somehow they're able to survive the environment here, and they've just overgrown the station. And no... It was a Dranger station, and they were all in, like, essentially, like, a stasis form because of these statues. And then the Jedi are like, well, we're just going to pull those out of there and see what happens. <laughs> self-owned. Jedi, self-owning. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I love the Dranger in this, and I love the way we get to learn their backstory and how they worked with the Sith to defeat the Jedi at an earlier date. But then also, then the Sith were afraid of them, and so then they had to lock them up. And like that sounds like that's where they were in the book you're talking about. Yeah, all that's supposed to have happened like thousands of years earlier. So like, right, they're like, a, they're like right. an ancient enemy that's being revived for this storyline, which is really interesting. It's so fun and creepy, and you don't really know right away like who, like who where they're coming from and like what's happening. And the Jedi are like, we're training this young Padawan, Keeve Trennis. She is very cool. She's trying to prove to her master, Scare, who is this very cool, like, snake crocodile man. I don't know. And Trennis is a black woman and human. And they are, you know, training. And Trennis is so cool. And she's, like, learning how to, like, you know, use the force. And you see flashbacks where she, like, almost falls. And then her master catches her. And you're just like, oh, my God, I love this part. And that's all just adorable. And then basically they, they run into the Drenger. And then they deal with that set of Drenger. And then the huts show up. And you're like, new antagonist, the 
hut. Oh, the cartel. It's like a cartel. The cartel. Yeah. Cartel. Mm-hmm. The hut cartel. Yeah. And so you're just like, oh no, we got a hut problem. Well, it's really interesting because like that's what I like about the High Republic is it, it really has a good like grasp on how to make some interesting antagonists. So you've got the Dranger and you've got the Huts now, which are kind of like this classic antagonist. Like it's one of the things in the Star Wars history, right? That the Hut space is on the border of Republic space. And like the Republic kind of pushed the Huts back. And they were they used to be these like gangsters who controlled huge parts of the galaxy and still do in certain era. That's why like Jabba's on Tatooine, because the Huts control Tatooine. So that's really cool. You see more of these people in the High Republic Adventures comics. But there's this group called the Nile. The Nile are very like Viking type. They're these invader marauder groups that they're they're a little bit more malevolent than that though. But they're they have this like whole kind of cult like idea of the storm and lightning and and like riding in on lightning. And they have this really like strange way of of accessing hyperspace that kind of drives them. And so we don't get a lot of that in the comics, but that's how they're introduced in the Light of the Jedi. And then the comics, when we pick up, the Nile are invading this world. And this is the world that I think mentioned earlier has this hatred of the Force. I think the Force is evil. And there's like this girl in the world who she has Jedi powers and she's been hiding it from everybody. And then the Nile attack and then the Jedi arrive because Yoda, who's on sabbatical, is like mentoring a group of Padawans. So they arrive and they start helping this fight. And then they find this young woman who has Jedi force powers. And then she ends up like revealing herself. And then her best friend is like, what? You never told me. And, and he's all upset that she was lying to him. And then these two characters split off. So she goes off with the Jedi at the end and he goes off with the Nile. And then at first they're communicating with each other, but they're also kind of being used by their various sides against each other in one way or the other. And that's kind of where the story leads to is like, are these two going to, like they, they're they kind of betraying each other already, but will they fully betray each other or will they end up being friends and best friends again, which is really fascinating and interesting. Yeah, I I loved this one. I think, you know, it's a it's a testament to Older and and his beautiful writing style that, you know, you get to see the characters at so much conflict with themselves. You know, even as they're communicating across their, you know, whatever it is that Princess Leia puts in R2-D2, you know, the hologram. They're like, I feel split in two. Part of me really misses you, and part of me is completely devastated that you would not tell me the truth of, like, who you are. That's Crix is the is a little boy who ends up on the ship with the Nile. And then Zine is the very cool-looking, she has, like, pink, are they tentacles? Or is it hair? I don't know. I don't think it's hair. I think it's, so usually when the characters have like parts of their body that like function like hair, they're usually called like Montrals or Leku. And I'm not sure if that race would use that same term or not, but that's what Ahsoka uses for the the Tegru to have, but. That was like so cool. Why am I blanking on Let me tell you the specific terminology. I'm like, well, I'm impressed. I might be wrong too. Someone's like, actually, it's not what Jet says, but. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's a really... And it's funny because like, you're right, this whole idea of like, these characters feeling like they're torn in two. And that's actually a part of the main higher public line as well that I really like is yeah. that you mentioned how Scare kind of gets infected a little bit by the Dranger. And Scare is a character... I might be trying to say I don't know how it's like Scare. That's how I always want to say it. Well, he always speaks like his <laughs> when he talks. I love the S's. I think it's so cute. He actually is in... He's a, he's a smaller character in Light of the Jedi and essentially... Oh. 
his like best friend character who's like another Jedi gets killed in this like epic battle towards the end. And so he's a character in this book who is carrying a lot of pain and anger from what happened. And that's why he's so susceptible to the dark side infection of the Drenger to begin with, because he's in so much pain and anguish mentally. And he, lo- he loses his arm in that story. And now we're at a point in this story where apparently his race, I think I think he's the same race as Bosk the bounty hunter, but mm. I believe he can regrow his limbs because he's a lizard person. And that's like something that's going to happen eventually. And that because he gets a fake arm from the Drenger and then Avar Chris, who is kind of the, like the leader of the Jedi in this like frontier sector of the galaxy is like, your arm will grow back. So, <laughs> And Avar Chris is actually in both books. She's in The Higher Public and The Higher Public Adventures because yes. she's the closest thing to like a hero or main character that the, the Lie of the Jedi really is an ensemble book, but she's kind of like the swaggering Jedi hero. And she's really fascinating because the way that she understands the Force is as like an ongoing song. She hears the Force as music to her. Like when Scare cuts himself off from the forest, she can't hear his song anymore. It's like a thing that she says. And essentially in the first novel, spoilers, she ends the book by being placed in charge of the Starlight Beacon. It's kind of like the central location of a lot of these stories. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of the stories you're going to see in the higher public are kind of these frontier stories centered around the Starlight Beacon and what's happening on these like outer rim planets like, there are some stuff that happens on Coruscant and in the central worlds, but the idea that I'm getting from all these books is that Starlight Beacon is kind of the, the primary, like, base of operations for the Jedi that we're going to be seeing in a lot of these stories. And then, so she's kind of like the boss, like the, the, the chief Jedi who's like, get, come into my office, kind of Jedi. Um, yeah. <laughs> but she's not, you know, she's willing to get roll up her sleeves and get her hands dirty as well, which is really fascinating, so. Yeah, she's fun. And then, and then in... Uh... The Higher Public Adventures, both Yoda is, as Riley was saying, teaching the Padawans. And then there's this character that I adore called Buckets of Blood. <laughs> <laughs> I love Buckets of Blood. And I love the joke about why he's called Buckets I of Blood. Too. Everyone's like, why don't you like fighting? Your name is Buckets of Blood. And he's like, my name is Buckets of Blood because I use the Buckets of Blood to save people. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you and me. And he's always eating. And I'm like, me and buckets of blood. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. And the, yeah, like they kind of present Yoda as on sabbatical from the Jedi Council. And instead he's just like just like running around taking care of kids, which is like hysterical. I mean, like he's like Steve from Stranger Things, but he's Yoda. Oh my <laughs> god. <laughs> the babysitter Yoda. That is so accurate. And I love that the kids, like every time he does something, the Padawans are like, oh, did you see that? Yeah. Yoda's amazing. Because I'm doing that in every single movie, right? I'm like, Yoda. So it's just like, oh, I love these comics. They feel so rich and excited. And they make me really excited for what's happening in the High Republic. And yeah. I, I honestly didn't even realize that a new event was starting, which is like, I feel like a jerk. I'm also wearing a Boba Fett hat as we record, so I'm like, I am full of contradictions <laughs> around Star Wars. <laughs> you maybe should watch The Mandalorian. Just gonna say, maybe you might want to watch I like the first season. I really enjoyed the first season. Just so just I will... saying maybe based on a certain hat choice, you might want to watch know, The Mandalorian. I know, I'm, I'm very much, I'm looking forward to it. I think my partner and I are about to go on vacation, so I think I actually might watch it while we're, nice. we're out of town. 
I'm, I'm excited for the future of the higher public because there's a graphic novel also written by Kevin Scott, but it's called The Monster of Temple Peak. And it's actually going to have art by my friend, Rachel Stott, uh, whose oh, name is cool. misspelled on Wikipedia now that I'm saying this. Rachel Stott <laughs> is an amazing artist. Rachel Stott is everything. I met her through Doctor Who fan, though. We're both obsessed with Peter Capaldi's 12th Doctor. And she did art for 12th Doctor and also the 13th Doctor. And last year at Gallifrey One, the Doctor Who convention that I go to every year, except for this year. But last year we got one in. We got we got our con in right before everything shut down because it was in February of 2020. And I did a cosplay that was a mashup of Ray and the 13th Doctor. And then Rachel was not at the con last year. She lives in London, so it's a little hard for her to travel there every year. So unless she's coming in as a featured guest, she unfortunately doesn't get to go. But I posted my costume on Twitter. And then the next day, I woke up in the morning and I I had a DM on Twitter from Rachel and it was a drawing that she had done of me in my 13th Dr. Ray cosplay. And it's actually still the featured image on my Twitter because I don't think I could ever change it. But that was amazing because it was like, oh, cool. My friend who is a Doctor Who artist just did a drawing of me as the doctor And now that same friend is a Star Wars artist, which means that my Doctor Who Star Wars mashup comic art is done by an artist who is a official Doctor Who and Star Wars comic artist. So it is bananas. So Yeah, that's amazing. I was actually just thinking about Rachel Stott and being like, oh, yeah, we should talk to her on the podcast maybe sometime. That'd be sweet. You absolutely should. She is a massive delight. So I'm a big fan of hers. Cool. (laughs) <laughs> I had the most fun with her two years ago at Galley. She came and then she hung out in LA for about another week or so because she was doing meetings and stuff with, with big time comic people and being very, very important. And we had brunch at this restaurant in LA. She got the table and I got there and she was like, I thought about getting a table inside, but then I was like, maybe Riley wants to be out in the sun and be in the light as if I was like this egotistical, like I want to have my good light. And it became like a running gag for the whole brunch of like, I can't be hiding in a room with window without windows. I'm a woman of the theater. Like it was this weird, like I was just like this grand dame of brunch. It was very bizarre. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. If you can get Rachel on your show, you should because she is delightful. Mm, sweet. That would be great. Yeah, I really liked this comic. I thought that it was great. It was one that had kind of flown underneath my radar, which is rare for a Star Wars comic, because as said, I'm always reading these things. I have never read any of the Star Wars novels, except for, I think, um, Claudia Gray, is that the name, who did the Leia novel? I've read that book, but that's the only one so far. So now I'm going to have to look up these High Republic novels. Yeah, Into the Dark is the one that, yeah, I I like that one a lot. There hasn't been that many that have actually come out yet, but there was The Light of the Jedi, then there was Into the Dark, and then there is also the middle grade novel which is called A Test of Courage. And I, I, that's by Justina Ireland. And it's, it's, it's decent, but I will say that I, I've had less engagement with that one. Both By the Jedi and the Dark, I couldn't, I couldn't read fast enough. But Test of Courage, I've, I've kind of put down a lot and come back to it. It's a little bit not as engaging for me as the other two have been. But I just, I love it as a concept because I love Star Wars and I like having Star Wars stories where I don't need to know anything about other, like if you're, if you're, if you like, the aesthetic of Star Wars, you know, like the story of Star Wars, but you don't necessarily need to like want to know all the canon of everything that's ever happened to Luke Skywalker in his life and you just want to watch a new, you want to run around some new Jedi. I think it's a great series for that exact reason. 
Oh my God, we talked about everything that I really wanted to talk about. So this was so much fun. Thank you for everything because it's so fun to talk about Star Wars, especially the comics, because that just has always been sort of where my heart has been. So it's just nice because very seldom do I get to have long conversations <laughs> about Star Wars comics. Yeah. And I think that this is our first Star Wars related episode. So like... That's wild. That's awesome. I know we talked a little bit about, we didn't get into it in the show, and I don't think we should go down this road now because of time, but we did talk about Dr. Afra a little bit. And from what I understand, mm. I haven't read the most recent Dr. Afra stuff, but I have heard that there's some higher public tie-ins to Dr. Afra as well, where like she's finding artifacts that are left over from the High Republic era. So I think I think it's really fascinating to kind of tie in the universes. And one thing that's one thing that hasn't come up in the comics yet that I love about the High Republic era, and this is in the Claudia Gray novel, Into the Dark, there is a aspect of the Jedi in this era where there's a group of Jedi, they're not really even Jedi anymore, but there's a group called the Wayfinders, and they are light side force users who have decided that the Jedi path is not the right path for them, but it's not them falling to the dark side. They're very much kind of like the Ahsoka Tano type characters. They're characters who have left the Jedi and are now pursuing their own path. So they almost have like this Ronin samurai kind of vibe to them. And I'm really into that concept. And if I ever had the chance to write a higher public story, I already know the character I would write about and she would definitely be a wayfinder. Or a way, way seeker? I think it's a way seeker. Give Riley the comic. Give <laughs> Riley the comic. Riley the comic. Yeah, I would read it. I mean, you've sold two copies already. All right, well, let's, <laughs> hey, Disney Disney Books. I've got 100% interest so far from everyone I've told about That's it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> We're in. <laughs> Riley, this has been so, so much fun. It's it's just so great to talk to someone who loves Star Wars with, with their whole heart and to give so much context. There was so much I did not catch that was going mm-hmm. on. And you were able to like give it context and describe it so that I don't have to go read that book. I might. It sounds you should kind know. of amazing. You should know. I know. Like it sounds really good. But until I get to it and my never ending TBR, I know what's happening now. <laughs> so I'm really grateful for that. If, if people want to uh, follow you on Twitter, support you on social media, how do they do that, Riley? Well, they can find me on Twitter at Riley J. Silverman, or they could find me on Instagram at Riley Silverman. Love it. Thank you for being here. Thank you for making time for us. Listeners, thank you for joining us. We appreciate you. Make sure you go follow Riley and support her. She's the best. And if you're lucky enough and live in an area where Riley will be doing comedy in the near future, go. My heart is broken that both the pandemic happened in general, but that it also stopped all the comedy and that I can't, you know, I don't live in LA. So I'm not going to get to see any of the comedy anytime soon. Well, you should check out Ripley Improv on Twitch where I'm doing a lot of fun, uh, you know, not, not stand up, but I'm doing, you know, I, I, at the point that this dropped, I can't say here what it is, but we have a really interesting new show that is going to be launching in May. And so by the time that this goes out, your listeners and yourselves will be able to go back and watch episodes of it. So if you go to Ripley Improv Perfect. on YouTube, you'll be able to see it. I think that it's a it's a genre and a storyline that will be really on brand for what people who love comics would be into. So Well, more to look forward to, which is I, I'm very grateful for. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we'll have to have you on again sometime soon. We got so much to talk about. We got to do a whole Doctor Who episode. Yeah, there's more. There's more. We'll do We'll do a Doctor Who episode. I'll talk about Star Wars for the first half hour of the show. And so. <laughs>
That's what we like, though. Seriously. (laughs) That's every episode, I feel like, of Bitches on Comics. So, fit right in. Bitches on Comics and whatever we want to talk about. Perfect. Thank you all. podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So (laughs) we can't have it spelled out. It is B.T.C.H.E.S.O.N.C. O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I'm bitch. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey, Jenny, have you um, ever heard of a vampire slayer? Do you mean the one girl in all the world with the strength and skill to fight the vampires, demons, and forces of darkness? I do. Oh, yeah. I've heard of her. Cool. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together, we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Never seen Buffy before? We will protect you. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? <laughs> Your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. So if you've never watched Buffy or if you're about to watch the series for the 14th time, come over and join us. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.